0: Welcome to The Theatre, the podcast of the Royal College of Surgeons of England. The Theatre is an ongoing conversation on surgery and surgical training, featuring practitioners from around the world on discussions ranging from learning and professional development to advances in technology and technique. This is the third episode in an ongoing series on the theme of health inequalities, which we will return to throughout the year. It has been developed in collaboration with Melanin Medics a national UK charity organization focusing on promoting diversity in medicine, widening aspirations, and aiding career progression for the Afro-Caribbean community. Throughout the course of this series, we will explore current inequalities in both patient and professional outcomes, and illustrate the steps that must be taken to ensure equality and fairness for all. This episode continues the discussion on protected characteristics in patient care, this time with a focus on the barriers experienced by gender-diverse individuals within the health service, Presented by William Adeboye, academia officer for melanin medics, and Dr. Alison Berner, a medical oncology specialist trainee and specialty doctor at the Gender Identity Clinic in London, this episode considers what health professionals can do to better understand and treat their gender diverse patients.
1: Hi, and welcome to this episode, which is a continuation in the health inequality series by the Royal College of Surgeons in collaboration with Melina Medics. Today's episode aims to explore the role of existing health inequalities for protected characteristics, specifically for gender diverse patients in healthcare, and the prevalent worsened health outcomes, which are in existence due to unconscious bias in medicine. My name is William Adeboye, and I am one of the academia officers at Melina Medics, a national UK based organisation, which specialises in promoting diversity in medicine, widening aspirations and aiding career progressions for African and Caribbean medical students and professionals. I have the pleasure to be joined here today with Dr. Alison May-Bernard, if you'd kindly introduce yourself.
2: Hi, so I'm Alison Berner. I am a medical oncology specialist trainee uh, and also a specialty doctor in adult gender identity at the Gender Identity Clinic in London, which is part of the Tavistock and Portman NHS Trust.
1: So to begin with, Alison, can you kindly provide some insight into the work or research you have done or currently involved in looking into the topic of health inequalities for gender diverse patients?
2: Uh, Absolutely. So I first got involved in this area because as a junior doctor I observed um, some level of of stigma um, towards gender diverse patients on the wards Um, and then taking up oncology as a specialty I realised that there was a real lack of um, research into health inequalities faced by gender diverse patients in that specialty and then also more broadly and it's one of those things where I've chased the butterfly and the more I've become involved the broader my work has become. Um, I actually followed that interest to the door of the GIC, um, who said, we quite like you. Would you like to apply for a job? And we'll support you to look into to work in, in health inequalities. So I see patients clinically there. Um, and then I've also undertaken a number of projects. Um, so a lot of work in screening. Um, so looking at improving access for cervical cancer screening for trans men and non-binary people. Um, some work looking at other types of screening, such as uh, breast screening or uh, screening for the endometrium, um, which is particularly important in trans men uh, who are on testosterone or non-binary people that are on testosterone. Uh, and I've kind of widened my, my interest as well to think about um, broader LGBTQ identities and how those people are treated within oncology and the attitudes that oncologists and other healthcare professionals might have towards treating patients and how that impacts directly on their care.
1: So you mentioned um, the attitude that healthcare professionals and other oncologists might have towards the attitude of their care. So through your work at the Gender Identity Clinic and your own experience, what are your thoughts and views about the current health inequalities faced by gender diverse patients?
2: So I think that they are broad. Um, I think the the obvious thing that people think about is stigma and discrimination. Um, And that doesn't just have to be the stigma and discrimination that people are experiencing right now. But the fear of stigma and dis- discrimination that has happened historically, um, that continues to create minority stress. Um, so I think a lot of the healthcare inequalities can be masked, because people say, "Well, actually, we have all these equality laws now," and and I turn around and say, "But yes, I speak to patients in in the gender identity clinic who are dealing with their own." Um, inbuilt sense of transphobia because of discrimination that they've faced over a number of years. It doesn't matter if they're protected from that now, it it continues um, even years on. that low level, that low level minority stress, or in some cases high level minority stress, continues to impact for people. Um, I think there's a real lack of visibility. Um, so you can walk into to a clinic and you don't see any any imagery around that that looks like you or that fits with your identity. People are discussing parts of your care or your support network in a way that doesn't fit um, with you. Um, and then there's outright you know, erasure or, or ignorance to, to specific healthcare issues. So for a long time, and, and that's now thankfully changing, there was almost complete ignorance of the fact that trans men and non-binary people with a cervix needed cervical screening, and they needed inclusive services. Um, and it's not just good enough to promote those services, you need to provide uh equal access and actually equitable access so it's not just saying you have the same right to be screened as everyone else but actually how can we facilitate screening that is more comfortable for you that works better for you that that might not increase dysphoria how can we make this the call and recall system work better for you for example
1: so um Alison you mentioned um about lack of visibility and of course, patients want to be able to feel comfortable when they go and see their healthcare providers. Now, different studies, including the 2018 Stonewalls Health Report, showed that one of the main barriers to healthcare for transgender individuals was a lack of cultural competence by healthcare providers. Now, cultural competence can refer to language, knowledge, or understanding of patients' gender. To what extent do you think that your colleagues in medicine and particularly surgery, have cultural competence to best serve their gender diverse patients.
2: So it's interesting that you bring up cultural competence um, because um, an editorial that I was recently doing some work for um, had uncovered to me that we should now be thinking not so much about cultural competence, but cultural humility, um, because there's a, a kind of school of thought that espouses that how can we be completely competent in a culture of which we don't have any experience. Um, we can have a level of insight, but can you truly be culturally competent for something that you've never actually experienced? So I prefer to think about this cultural humility um, and the and the kind of appreciation of what someone might be going through, even if you lack that complete understanding. Um, and I think that people's experience is, is of course variable because it really depends how how far embedded into the culture perhaps you are yourself if you are someone who is lgb for example you might have an insight into um something around minority stress something around queer identities but you're still not going to understand um, how it is to be gender diverse if you are from a minority ethnic background again you might have a, a sort of an, uh, an insight into some of that person's experience perhaps around lack of visibility or imagery if you are in a part of the country where for example you, you walk into a waiting room and all the posters are white um, but but you, you still won't be able to com- completely appreciate um, and so i think i think that that level of of competency or humility really varies it also depends you know who your friends are um where you went to medical school um who you've mixed with um what sort of um activities and hobbies you do um that might give you these different insights into all of the different populations um that you work in i, I think there is more um I think, I think there's more awareness now that that's, that that's an important thing to do to understand the different populations with whom you work and to, particularly I think through mediums of things like reality, not when I say reality TV, um, I'm not talking about Bake Off, um, but you know these kind of more reality documentaries or listening to podcasts um, that are you know embedded in, in cultures completely different to your own. Uh, when my friends say, you know, how can I be a good trans ally? I'm like, go and listen to a trans podcast. Listen to several get get you know get an insight into what the real issues are, not what you read in the Daily Mail. Um, and, and I think so I think all of that, I think all of that is improving, but I think across medicine we still we still have a long way to go and there's huge variability.
1: Thank you for Alison for highlighting the distinct difference um, between cultural competence and cultural humility. And it just goes to show that we are for myself continually learning about these differences. Um, and you mentioned um that for example you tend someone or your friends to go and listen to trans podcast if they want to be made more aware so my next question was going to be what do you think can be done to tackle this current lack of knowledge within the healthcare providers
2: um so I think education is obviously important when we think about knowledge um and that really needs to start at the undergraduate level um in the uk we we act we lack a common um curriculum that covers um trans and gender diverse healthcare as regards transition related care or other healthcare issues. We actually lack uh, a curriculum that, that really covers, um, LGBTQ healthcare in an integrated way um, we don't just need a one-off lecture we need you know threads running through a curriculum and I think there are moves now by LGBT foundation and others to try to improve that situation um, but there's some great work being done already but it's at individual medical schools and it doesn't always receive the attention and funding that it deserves I know for example um, UCL has done some great work with their curriculum and then that needs to follow through um, into the postgraduate curriculum where you would expect, you know, better technical knowledge, but also something around um, kind of good leadership um, from more senior medics in terms of, you know, making sure that, you you know, principles of equality are upheld, um, that ways of behaving are, you know, second to none within the leaders of a healthcare team, and that filters down to anyone else that might be coming in and, and might not... Be behaving in in the best way, so thinking about using the correct pronouns, checking identity in the right way, being respectful, knowing what somebody's legal rights are, knowing where to direct them to for more information, and that really needs to come f- from the top down. Um, so we need to be educating our, our senior medics so that they feel empowered to lead their teams in the right kinds of behaviours, because I think so much of what goes wrong um, in the healthcare experience for a number of minority groups comes from this sort of nervousness and not really knowing what to do. um, And that lack of competence and that lack of confidence, if anything, then, then leads to errors and and people kind of trip over themselves and they feel embarrassed and they feel ashamed. And, and that's when it all goes horribly wrong. Most, um, most incidents of, of what, where people experience um, discrimination and that they're not always intentional. I I think it's people just feel ashamed. They don't have knowledge and then they get it wrong and it snowballs.
1: Yes, I think um, education from both the top, like you mentioned, people in position of leadership and from medical schools and through to postgraduate levels is very important in order for healthcare individuals and providers to make sure they foster an inclusive environment for gender diverse patients. Um throughout your career in gender medicine, would you say you have seen positive change in clinical practice and I was wondering um if you could share any about any possible success stories or where you think good strides have been made to help foster this more inclusive and welcoming environment
2: um so i would I would still say that I'm relatively young in my career um i I certainly don't any longer see some of the discussions that I thought were were in, in ways discriminatory from when I was a junior, but perhaps that's because I'm no longer in those uh, those particular, you know, meetings or or discussions where I might um, witness that. So these were things around um, the discussion in a morning meeting being more based around whether the patients should go in a in a male bay a female bay or a side room, and not about what was clinically going on with their care. Which, you know, that that's not what that, that morning meeting is about. Um, and, um, and and I, and I I would like to think with the publication of guidelines, things like that no longer matter. Um, and no sorry no longer happen um I think I I think that things have improved um but I think we stand on a precipice because there are you know there's a consistent um anti-trans movement being covered in the press and in political spheres and as long as that's allowed to continue there you know there will be a subset of people um, everywhere. And unfortunately, that may include medics who think that unacceptable behaviour is okay, um, And that's something that we need to stamp out. Um, With regard to, you know, to positive things that are happening, there are many. So a big stride forward um, was having... um, sexual uh, orientation and gender identity included in the census, and it should be coming into healthcare data. Now, the census may not have got their question 100% right on this, but actually being able to monitor properly, and I'm I'm reliably informed by the national LGBT advisor that the healthcare-related question um, on on trans status and gender identity will be much better. It's actually two questions. you know that will enable us to understand more the population and and their needs. And you know that the phrase that's oftenly often used is that if you if you don't count us, we don't count. When I'm planning research or planning healthcare interventions, people say, "Well, okay, what well, you know what what's the trans population in this area?" And I have to say, I, "I I don't know. I can give you a broad estimate, but I I don't know." And and that that stops us getting the proper investment and and funding for improvements. Um, so I'd say that's been a, you know, that's been a real major stride um, in in recent times. Um, on, a, on a personal level, I know that we've been able to to provide some really amazing holistic care at um through, well, through the gender identity clinic where I work in partnership with other healthcare teams within the country for patients with cancer, where we've been able to work together um, to to integrate that person's cancer care and their gender affirming care where it's been relevant. Um, And, and I can think of one particular case uh, where that patient who sadly is no longer with us um, was so grateful for, for having that, that extra support and and so there's been there's been big changes on a national level, and, and we we continue to try to make big changes to, to individuals as well.
1: I think um, it's incredibly important for all healthcare providers and people within, and professionals to remember that we're here to help serve all patients, irrespective um, of their background and their gender. And this is something that we should keep in mind in everything we do. Um, I just wanted to ask, Do you, are you aware of any initiatives or techniques um, that perhaps the Royal College of Surgeons or other healthcare organisations can adapt towards for gender diverse patients?
2: So um, one really good um, initiative, again by LGBT Foundation, is, is the Pride in Practice initiative. Now that's mainly aimed at primary care, so it started with um, education of GPs. Um, but has broadened to include um, other community groups such as dentists and pharmacists um, and that really has um, has aimed to provide kind of a core training um, around LGBTQ identities um, for staff at all levels and it, it allows um, awards to be given for different practices so it asks them to do a certain level of monitoring um, to uh, to have a certain amount of visibility, provides basic training to healthcare staff. Um, I believe that that you know that continues to expand, and and a similar sort of thing um, would would be a fantastic idea um, to kind of adopt within within different royal colleges. Um, I know that there's work being done by the RCR because it's something that I'm involved with to to again improve education and training. Um, around um sexual minority groups and then also uh gender diverse healthcare issues um i think what's really important is that we try to we try to standardize um this education as much as possible and that's something else the lgbt foundation are being involved in um, and that and that education and initiatives that are adopted are trans-led um there's um, and, and I think I'm acutely aware as someone who is cisgender coming onto this podcast and talking about it is that, you know, don't don't just listen to me, go out and listen to your gender diverse te- patients and your gender diverse colleagues and and take up initiatives and training that that is on offer from them. Um, I work with a fantastic charity called Live Through This, which is um, for LGBTQ um, people who have been um who have experienced cancer um, and their founder is non-binary and they do a lot of training. Um, And, and, and again, that can be uh, taken on by, by individual hospitals um, or by, um, by wider groups. So I think that's really important.
1: Yes. So the Royal College of Surgeons have previously mentioned um, establishing a diversity in surgery group as a new way to influence policy and advocacy work. So this will aim to tackle racism, sexism, and other prejudices within surgery. Potentially having members within this group that can advocate for gender diverse diverse patients would help effect change. My question to you is, do you think that this is a feasible way of driving change within the college? And how can we make sure that this is a value adding initiative and not just another idea?
2: So so I think that's a great idea. I think what's really key is that actually you you want to make sure that uh, you're recruiting people into surgery as a specialty and into medicine who are gender diverse and encouraging them because if they don't get into the college they're not going to get onto the board um, and so it, it's almost a, it's its own upward cycle so I think Yes, I think that initiative is 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 fantastic, but you might you need to you need to have a look at who applies for it. And um, and by looking at who applies for it, you might you you might see what level of diversity is already reflected in the college itself and actually where you need to focus your efforts um, beyond just um, getting gender diverse people involved in surgery as a specialty, but getting them involved in, in, in medicine overall, um, and in supporting specialties and in supporting, um, roles. Um, but I, and I do, but I do think it's a fantastic idea. It also helps think about a bit more about intersectionality, um, which is a, another buzzword of the moment. And is so is also so important, um, to understand that you can't, you can't consider any one minority group as homogenous and that, you know, everybody will be a bit different. And many people have, or, you know, they have identities which cross a number of of minorities and they might face different challenges again.
1: Thank you for that. Um, So moving on, one thing that I wanted to ask was, Obviously, us having this conversation now is beneficial to both ourselves and all of our listeners as well. Um, Do you think that highlighting certain inequalities in genderized patients now um, is good practice, or do you feel like these should have been highlighted sooner, given its prevalence in society and the impact it has on patients?
2: Well, I mean, it's almost a bit of a leading question, isn't it? I mean, we've we've known about uh, widening inequalities for a long time um the the problem I guess leads back to what I've said already about that if you don't count us we don't count we we are we sh- we should have we in fact as I say we should have been highlighting inequalities we have been hi- highlighting inequalities for decades but the power wasn't there because nobody was looking at it and and funding it. So yes, should we have done more sooner? Almost almost certainly. But that, that's not where we should be focusing our energies. We should be focusing our energies forward. And how do we future proof ourselves now? Let's not think about how we tackle the inequality that we see necessarily at the moment. But actually, let's look in 20 years time. Um, so let's think about the population cohort when we get the numbers back now of gender diverse people. What, what conditions are they going to be getting in 20 years time? Which clinics are they going to be rocking up to? And and not not how not just how can we do a good job, but actually how how might we go wrong? How how might we get this wrong in twenty years' time, and how do we stop ourselves doing that? I think they call it a pre-mortem. Um, I don't think we do enough of that in medicine. So not just thinking what can we do right right here and right now, but how do we get ready to avoid ourselves causing greater inequalities in the future? And I think that's where we should be. Focusing our energies. Let's let's aim to be the best healthcare system in the world when it comes to treating, what well, treating all minority groups, but treating gender diverse patients in particular, since it's the subject of this podcast. We have a national health service. We have equality of access. Let's make that equity of access.
1: I think you touched upon something that's really important there, that we've known how it was in the past and we're currently living and we're aware of what it is now. So hopefully in the future, we should, like you mentioned, preempt what could potentially go wrong in order to mitigate those, um, those things that happened then. So I think that's um, very important there. If I might ask you a more personal question, um, what challenges have you encountered in the course of your career with regards to your surgical qualities, understanding of gender medicine, and how might it impact patients?
2: Um, so I have um, not come into a situation where I have met surgical colleagues specifically who um, who have created barriers to healthcare for trans patients. Now I'm aware that that probably does happen, um, but I personally haven't been involved in any particular situations. I'm very privileged to meet a number of. incredibly skilled and, you know, well-informed surgeons who work specifically in gender-affirming treatments. Um, And then outside of of my practice in gender identity healthcare, in in my work within oncology and within medical training, say none of the unfortunate situations that I was involved in did I kind of firsthand witness any behaviour that I thought I shouldn't? Um, What I think is more of a challenge is, and that I see through my work trying to facilitate better oncology care for trans patients, is merely around a lack of of knowledge and awareness of... um, of where one might need to kind of go the extra mile. Now those, I don't know if those surgeons are using the right pronouns. I don't know how those, those clinical consultations are going. Um, but what I know is I probably don't get asked perhaps as much as I should do about, okay, well, what should we do with this patient who's had, um, who's, who's had a breast cancer, who's trans, for example, what do we do about their estrogen? Um you know, what are, that's, you know, that's the domain of not just an oncologist, there'll be a whole breast team involved. Um, so it's, it's more around that, that little bit of extra thinking of, of where, what things might be important and, and how do we, how do we continue to provide good care for that person in a, in a joined up way? So that actually one person doesn't start saying, oh, maybe you shouldn't have your hormones. And then that person panics and then, um, and then there's a, a long wait for to hear back from a gender identity clinic, and it, it it's 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 the it's those extra little nuggets of knowledge that would just help for a better patient care experience overall. Um, and it's why I would advocate every healthcare professional who has not covered it as part of their undergraduate or postgraduate training to 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 do some reading and just to just to sit and think about what would the experience of a Gender diverse person in my clinical practice be, um, where you know, w- would I would I be giving them the level of care that they require, and, and where might I need to go the extra
0: mile?
1: Yeah, I think um, like you mentioned, we could all do with um, just sitting down, reflecting, um, gaining that extra knowledge um, before we go to um, interact with our gender diverse patients. Um, in the future, what would a healthcare system that was cognizant of challenges and gender diverse patients look like to you?
2: So I think there's two there's two elements to that. There's something about transition related care and gender affirming treatments, and then there's something about a healthcare system more broadly. Um, that thinks about um healthcare problems that are. Uh, 100% unrelated to that person being trans but might intersect um so when i think about um gender affirming healthcare um i think a model of of much easier access to that that is not gatekept um that allows people to make properly informed decisions so that that person can be supported to kind of mitigate any challenges that they might have in their transition be that because they have a health condition where they need to have proper informed consent because of the hormones that they take or um or where they might require a certain extra level of of psychological support um not because trans and gender diverse people experience any um higher rate of mental health problems um merely because they are trans it's because they they've experienced a certain amount of minority stress and so they need to have that appropriate support but if they could have that rapidly and not wait the period of time that they currently have to um that would you know that would improve that mental health and physical well-being in in so many myriad ways um and then thinking about um other other conditions uh, a world where it wouldn't matter which hospital, or which clinic that patient rocked up to. A, a, every, every doctor, nurse, other healthcare professional would know exactly how to um, use the correct pronouns for that person, regardless of what those pronouns were. They would ask what those pronouns were. They would um, know um, that they needed to check in about that person's identity and know to allow them to self-identify and that if they made a mistake that they would know how to deal with that and then they would know when it was relevant that that patient was trans and if they needed to ask about that transition and when it wasn't relevant to ask Um, and they would know where there might be an intersection of whatever condition they were treated with that person's gender affirming care Um, and again where there isn't and if they needed more advice they would know where to go to and they would know and have the confidence with of how to to handle that um and and then if they did need to go to contact that advice that advice would be readily and 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 available in a in a joined up kind of way so you hear these awful horror stories of someone going into to hospital with a broken arm um, and someone says we're going to stop your hormones why are you going to do that? Of course, this this poor person's broken their arm. And the next thing you're saying, you're going to take away something, you know, that, (laughs) that is part of their, their their well-being. Um, and, and thankfully that, that doesn't happen as much as it used to, but there are still places where it does happen. Um, and, and so I guess that's my vision of a, a much, a much improved healthcare system.
1: (laughs) Before I, Bring this to a close and ask some more closing questions. Um, we've talked about how professionals um, need to take a holistic care, a holistic nature into. Um, I'll, I don't. I don't know how to phrase it. Um,
3: Can I ask a question? Um, I'm really curious. I'm. This is. This is the producer speaking. Um, I'm really curious as a trans person. Um, about how, I feel like, I feel like what I get a lot of is like people kind of asking like kind of pronouns being the kind of be all and end all of patient care. And like, if you ask someone pronouns and you get it right most of the time, like that's most of the battle, but I'm really curious as to what kind of follows on from me or from what you were saying earlier, like, what does a wider picture look like? What does it mean? to, you know, treat someone with dignity in the hospital, because it's one of my greatest, like, fears is to end up is to like, be taken to the hospital unconscious for some reason. So how do we kind of get beyond a discussion around this sort of thing that isn't just very superficial, because I think like pronouns are great that's fantastic. But that's like a tip of the iceberg kind of thing. Like that's the thing that like makes people feel nice if they can get, if they get people's pronouns most of the time. Does that make sense?
2: I I, I absolutely agree that it needs to go so much beyond that. Um, I appreciate what you're saying. And I, I, I have heard so much similar fear from my trans friends and colleagues, um, when they think about accessing healthcare. It's not what just people are saying to your face, but what do they genuinely think about you when they treat you? Um, and and I that that goes back to that competency versus humility thing, right? You want people to actually empathize and and if they've got a discriminatory attitude somewhere subconsciously, you you want to work out how do you get people to ditch that. Um, and and I guess what you do you how do you fundamentally change people's thinking and get past that that prejudice and you you need to give such a level of immersion and education and that it becomes you know it becomes ridiculous to even conceive that someone would treat a person in any different way you know why why would you not treat a trans woman like a woman like any other woman like why why would that be acceptable um and and that's a that's a real challenge it's something that I I've touched on in a couple of articles that I've written and and we've discussed as a group of authors like what what is that how do you make that happen and I think you you need to get to this critical this critical point within within a culture within an organizational culture and within a a country-wide culture to just make it entirely unacceptable and And stamp it out and I think education is only education is only the the baseline of that Um, and I think it comes back to that leadership point as well that you need to make sure that the people the people in power you know none of them hold those kind of beliefs that and that people genuinely you know people meet enough gender diverse people to understand that it's just another group of society. I, I, you know, I, but I, but I agree. I think, I think education is the starting point, leadership, changing organizational culture, um, and changing, changing national culture. That's a whole other, that's a whole other thing. Um, but it's not easy. It's not easy. And I think it, it must be, it must be terribly frightening and the only way I can, Relate to that myself is um, so I'm I'm a bisexual woman. I was married to a woman for a number of years, and there were countries in the world where I said I'm never going to go because I don't know if someone catches me looking or holding hands in a particular way, if if I'm going to get marched, you know, to to the nearest wherever and get stoned to death, and and I genuinely said to my to my partner at the time, "Well, we're not going." Um, you can't say that in healthcare, can you? You can't say, "Well, there's." I'm just not going to go to hospital. Sometimes you just have to. Um, and it's yeah, it's it's a, it's it's a big challenge. But hearing hearing that fear, if 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 more people like yourself could could be heard as part of this training or education, saying those things, I think people would people would relate. We need more gender diverse voices in the media in healthcare education you know involved in in every rung of life to change that culture because people won't appreciate that experience unless they hear it firsthand
3: sorry William I totally just broke the fourth wall here and <laughs> and, it's great. and stepped out of my producer box when I maybe shouldn't have well, but uh, <laughs> I love that
2: second I love that about Radio One. I know I'm told I'm. I told I'm told at 33. I'm too old to listen to Radio One. But they ask the producer stuff all the time, which I love.
3: Um, <laughs> William, uh, William, did you have? Uh, did you? Uh, did you kind of think of a way to phrase your question?
1: Um, yes, it was linking back to um, how Alison mentioned if more transgender individuals came and spoke about their cases so there have been a few direct studies um, on self-reported cases um, but it's quite difficult to make these widely known within healthcare and so there are a few national level investigations um, into um, gender diverse patients inequalities in healthcare so i was wondering how might this be overcome in the future and how might we see a better national change obviously national change takes time but it's something that we can perhaps start to think about
2: so i think that the challenge that we have in the reporting of healthcare inequalities for gender diverse people is that what makes it into the national news is not necessarily ro- representative of wider issues and that um and It isn't necessarily given the proportion of airtime that reflects its impact on the individual population. So there are issues that, you know, have been huge barriers to equality for gender diverse people for many, many years. And they get swept readily under the carpet. And there are things that have affected a few people that have made very major national news and caused quite a political storm um, and are not necessarily reflective of an entire situation. Um, How we improve that, once again, is, is making trans voices at the forefront. And again, I'm I'm aware that I'm saying this as a cisgender person talking about trans issues on a podcast. And what I often tell my colleagues is that any opportunity that you have, you you hand the mic to to the gender diverse person that you're working with. And and I don't mind saying that I spoke to a number of friends and colleagues before accepting to come on this podcast because I was concerned that in this instance, I hadn't done that. I think, I think we need to lobby media as much as we do the government for parity when it comes to coverage of, of inequalities, healthcare or otherwise, um, for this group and encourage more investigative journaling uh, journalism and for that journalism to, to make it. Um, I, th- I think that's incredibly important. Um an example is the fact that i you know a piece of research that i that that we have had out online for a time you know has been repeatedly dropped and not covered as yet because it you know because other issues took the fore when you have uh when you have some other things being reported that seem that that have not been at you know at the forefront of of inequalities and that have they but they are they, they get the media attention because they're controversial and they cause, they cause spin. Uh, I, I guess what one thing that's really worth worth thinking about is is for example the gender recognition certificate process. So there was a huge, uh, there was a huge consultation on that, and then the decision that was made regarding um gender recognition certificates, which for context are those which allow gender diverse people to change their birth certificate. So they can already change their passport or their driver's license very easily, but to change their birth certificate, which enables no, a number of legal processes, um, they require a gender recognition certificate. And the process for that is arduous and it costs a lot of money and it takes a lot of time and you're not guaranteed for it to be accepted. Um, and there was huge um there was a huge uh consultation on it and what was decided as a result of that consultation was almost entirely at odds with what the consultation found in terms of an increased ability to self-identify using that certificate to make the process easier and one of the biggest issues um for um w- within the gender diverse community that, that that consultation should have tackled was recognizing non-binary identities and it didn't the consultation didn't even look at that um but did it make it did it make headline news that the government just went and ignored a massive chunk of the population no it did not
1: yeah i think coverage um goes in unison with education as well and both of them Um, along with other initiatives and methods would really help drive change and affect change within the healthcare system. You've mentioned over this conversation um, a few learning points or advice that our listeners can take away with us today. Um, But my last question to you would be if you could share three key learning points um, for all the healthcare providers listening today and how they can incorporate that into their clinical practice, what would they be?
2: So I guess my three key points. Um, the first one, inspired by what we've what we've very recently talked about, is to challenge your biases, your conscious and your unconscious biases, and try to catch yourself um, when you're treating all types of patients, um, and look at whether that bias, and in this case, it might be against gender diverse patients, is driven. Is driven by your lack of of confidence in your own knowledge and ability and skills. Secondly, to follow that up is is undertake some formal training, even if it's self directed. Go. Um, there are many kind of good online lectures, e learning. There's a great module by the LGBT Foundation. Um, go and and educate yourself. Um, speak to gender diverse patients and colleagues now be careful there because um very often and um, people in minority groups are expected to be the educators and that can be quite exhausting but if you if you approach them in a in a sensitive way and as you know how do you feel about this and and you know that method of kind of gentle inquiry then my experience and and say what my friends and colleagues who are gender diverse tell me is that you'll usually be met with 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 a positive response um, and thirdly is that um you will get it wrong um if you are not a member of that community at some point you will put your foot in it or you will make a mistake um, and that won't necessarily bear up of un- unconscious bias or ignorance it, it's that you know you, you you haven't lived that life there will th- there will be things that you will not think of or consider because we all have our own individual Parts and out, you know, you, you'll do that with everybody, and it's not to, it's not to to think, well, if I'm going to make a mistake anyway, there's not point in trying. But when you make that mistake, do not make it about you, um, because don't make that trans or non-binary person feel bad that you made the mistake about their identity. Apologize and move on. Um, those would be my my three very basic things for interaction. Everything beyond that. Um, is stuff that, you know, that needs to be covered as part of that education that needs to be to go further. But these, these are, these are basics for the clinical interactions that you should be, that you should be having every day and, and self-reflection that we should all be doing all the time um, to be allies to the people around us.
1: Thank you very much for that, Alison, um, and for your advice there as well. Um, it's been incredibly insightful and informative for both myself today and I hope for our listeners too. It's conversations like these which are salient, I think, for the progression of best healthcare delivery for all patients. And I think this is a topic that not only the Royal College of Surgeon and its members will benefit from, but I believe all of our listeners here today um, can take key learning points away from it too. So once again, thank you for your time and your expertise.
2: You're very welcome. It's been a pleasure.
0: Thank you for listening. The next episode of our ongoing collaboration with Melanin Medics will discuss socioeconomic inequalities in relation to patient care. Featuring Nina Modi, Professor of Neonatal Medicine at Imperial College London and President-elect of the British Medical Association. This podcast series was developed in collaboration with Melanin Medics with contributions by Ayomide Ayurinde, Olamide Dada. David Falui, William Adeboye, Jade O'Kane, Temi Robbie, and Nino Soemimo. Please see the show notes for links to articles referenced in this episode. Don't forget to subscribe to the theater wherever you get your podcasts. And for further updates from the college, please visit our website or follow us on social media.